There are other aspects concerning this prophecy which affirm Agabus's accuracy, but I believe the central issue here goes back to Agabus proclaiming to speak by the Holy Spirit. It troubles me that error would be attributed to God in any way. It brings sincere questions to mind, and some of these I have already asked. But here is one final question. Why would we want to justify error in any way in the prophetic movement by searching the scripture to find an origin of error? According to Bible scholars, the claim of error on the part of Agabus was not ever brought up into question or consideration until modern times. There are people far more qualified than myself who have broached this subject. And ultimately, the word speaks for itself. I believe Agabus was accurate because the written word of God confirms it. And I sincerely refuse to attribute error to the Spirit of God who spoke through him. You just heard an excerpt from my latest blog post featured on Love Scribe. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Scribe. Recently, I was listening to a YouTube video that was talking about the current prophetic movement and some of the errors that had taken place and the prophetic standard statement, which I actually talked about that last week. If you want to go back and check out the blog post and even the podcast I did on that, and there are other people that have biblical training, linguistic training and such in the, in the, in the languages that are far more educated in this than I am. I merely wanted to offer some input from someone who was heavily involved in the prophetic movement, the charismatic movement, the apostolic slash prophetic movement, NAR, whatever label you want to put on it. And the things that were said last year really bothered me and concerned me because there was so much error and it was being dismissed or excused. Anyway, this YouTube video I was watching recently, they were addressing the uh, prophetic standard statement. And one of the hosts on this discussion made a comment at least twice, that, to my recollection, mentioned the fact that Agabus was incorrect in his prophecy to Paul in Acts 21. Hence, this is one of the things that people will use in the prophetic movement that believe that prophecy is still for today, as far in the aspect of foretelling rather than forthtelling, and basically using Agabus as a scapegoat, really, or using his, what happened in Acts 21 and saying, well, Agabus was in error. He didn't get everything right. The transmission was wrong or however you want to word that. But ultimately, they're saying that he was in error. And this proves that, that prophecy today can be an error while still being uh, through someone. If they call themselves a prophet, that doesn't make them a false prophet. And I would disagree with that statement. Now, I have not been to seminary. I don't have biblical training. I don't have any sort of degrees to back that up. Not degrees as far as in theology or anything like that. I'm presenting this to you today as a layperson, a person who was very biblically illiterate when I was in the charismatic movement. And now coming out of that two years ago and really wanting to study the Bible more, search the scriptures to utilize um, other sources that help me resources such as commentaries, lexicons and things to try to help gain a better understanding of what I'm reading and making sure that I understand it in context. I'm starting to see things differently than what I used to. And not just take something that what somebody's teaching at face value that is not going back to the scripture. And I'll be honest with you, when I heard this statement, which was coming from charismatic brothers in Christ, 
it bothered me when I heard it. And the reason why it bothered me was because, no pun intended, but it seemed as if the Agabus was being thrown under the prophetic bus. And when I read Acts 21 in context and then began to read Acts, which I'll preface this here by saying before I get further into this, I had read Acts right after coming out of this movement and what happened to me and my husband and having to, to exit the way we did because of things that happened. I started, one of the first things I did along with reading other books in the charismatic church and, and testing them against scripture, I did that a lot. And let me just tell you, if if you get easily frustrated with things, I encourage you not to do that. I discourage you from not doing something like that because it will it may discourage you more. If you can stomach it and you can handle doing that, if it doesn't embitter you or cause you to be angry and uh, to sin, which the Bible tells us not to do, then I would encourage you to search out some of these things, keep your heart right before the Lord, keep your motives right before the Lord, and make sure that it's going to glorify God in the process and that you're wanting to be built in spiritual maturity according to Scripture. Because I found out there were a lot of things that I was being mistaught. There were a lot of things that I was aligning with that were very unbiblical, that I was in the dark about, and they were still in these circles that I ran in. And so I, one of the things I did when I came out of all this was I started reading the book of Acts, because that was a book that was that's mentioned a lot in the charismatic churches, hyper charismatic churches. It's focused a lot of, on a lot about about tongues and things, which I'm actually getting ready to do a, a discussion about the gift of tongues and what that looks like biblically here very shortly. So stay tuned for that. Anyway, back to Agabus. So I started reading Acts again a couple years ago, and I've read it through now three times to better understand it. And the more I kept reading, the more I kept realizing some of the things that I thought I understood that were presented to me in past teachings when I looked at them in the context of the scripture around those verses that were used that was not accurate. Now, I don't ever recall hearing a teaching about Agabus being incorrect. That may have been in some of the teachings that I was in, but if it was, it wasn't highlighted. It wasn't made a big deal about. But now paying attention to that more coming out of this movement and hearing that, it really, like I said, it really causes me to withdraw from that and even push back on that statement because scripture just simply does not support the fact that Agabus was incorrect. So we're going to look at scripture today and walk through this and talk about it. As always, I encourage people that are listening to always test what I'm saying or whoever is talking to you. If they're presenting scripture to you, then what you should be doing is opening your Bible, reading along or going back through or taking notes and then going back on your own time and searching it out for yourself. We should be proactive in our understanding of scripture and not be passive about it. And let someone else do the work for us. But we need to be students of the word. And we need to make sure that we understand the scripture. So that way, if we're in a position, even with the gospel, when you're ministering the gospel, you're not ministering from experience. Yes, your testimony is valuable, but it's not the gospel, for example. So how do you minister the gospel? It's through the scriptures that testify of Christ. And because we are in right relationship with Christ. And yes, Christianity is still a religion, but it's a religion with a person in right relationship with Christ. We cannot separate the religion from the relationship. Some people will try to do that. That's another topic for another day. So let's get back on the trail and off the rabbit trail and back, back on the Agabus. The first time that we see Agabus mentioned, now we, got, we need to lay a little bit of groundwork here before we get to Acts 21. So for just a minute, the first time that we see Agabus mentioned in the, the New Testament at all is in Acts 11. 
And we know that the scripture there mentions that he is a prophet and he comes and he lays the, the lays out the, the, um, the prophecy that there's going to be a famine in the, in the world. And it says that the believers began to prepare themselves and they began to assist one another. They, uh, according to their ability, they sent relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we see that in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Now, right here, it would seem that if Agabus is being mentioned as a prophet, and this, this indeed this famine did happen, then this is laying the groundwork before Acts 21 comes along to indicate that Agabus was indeed a true prophet. Because we can see from Scripture that the, test, the Old Testament standard never changed, even from the New Testament. And there's, like I said, there's lots of other people that have covered this that have the, the vast education that I do not have. One book that I would recommend to you if you want to read it, whether you're charismatic or non-charismatic, that would be, I think it would be good for you to look at, and it's going to direct you back to Scripture, and it may challenge you on some of the things that you've been taught. It's an older book called Satisfied by the Promise of the Spirit. And um, I think Thomas Edgar was the one that wrote it. Forgive me if I'm getting the name wrong. I don't have it in front of me. But I came across this book. I heard another minister mention it uh, uh, within the past six months when I heard something. And so I found it on Thrift Books and ordered it. And I've been reading through it. It's fairly meaty to go through, I'll be honest. It's not a thick book, but it's got a lot of content to it. And I would actually get my Bible out and look at what was being said and helping helping myself to understand it better. There are references such as for prophets that are um, referenced not only in the New Testament, but seamlessly from the Old Testament, different words that are used for the same when you see prophecies that are mentioned. For example, in Acts 2, when Peter references Joel, that's a famous passage that a lot of people like to quote, that um, your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men shall see visions, and your young men shall dream dreams. That is actually referencing Joel. So the fact, for example, some scholars will say that the fact that they're referencing Old Testament prophets indicates that the standard never changed to the New Testament. Now, you'll hear some people say that we're in the New Testament, we're under grace, which the New Testament is uh, the new covenant that we're under, under Christ, for dying for our sins in accordance with Scripture, for being buried and resurrecting from the dead, and now having the promise of eternal life through through by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're in a better covenant now. Hebrews talks about we're in a better covenant. There's, he's been a better sacrifice. Everything's better, but yet, and this is not my thought. This is from another minister. The thought is prophecy got worse under the new covenant, that there's now error that's acceptable because we're under grace. Now, we are under grace. However, when I would say that when someone, uh, and someone will use, I would say like a straw man to say, well, prophets are are human beings and they're going to be fallible. Well, yes, that's true. However, when you look in scripture, you're going to find that when a prophet spoke through the spirit of God, that was not fallible. So we can't use that. When a person, when a prophet is speaking on their own volition, when they're speaking on their own opinion, such as what Nathan did in, in Samuel to David when, when David wanted to build the temple, he spoke of his own volition, of his own opinion, of his own assumption and his emotion. But then right after that, it says, but the word of the Lord came to, to Nathan and began to correct Nathan and tell him what he was to speak to David and to correct that matter. So just because someone is human doesn't mean that if they speak for God that it it's not supposed to be infallible or inerrant because God is incapable of speaking inerrantly because he's God. So this is one of the rubs that I have with this as someone who came out of this movement 
and forgive me for uh, maybe getting a little bit passionate about this, but as someone who came out of this movement and was in error by attributing words to God that he never said, to say that God said something and it doesn't come to pass, it seems as if there's reverence that's been lost for speaking and saying God said something. I'm fairly passionate about this part of it because of, again, coming out of that error. It it disturbs me how people are holding on to things and they're not going back to scripture. And because of false teaching, some people have even walked away from what they thought they knew as Christianity because of these prophecies not taking place. And they put their hope in the wrong thing. They put their hope in something that they shouldn't, that wasn't even based in God. So when someone claims to speak for God or the Holy Spirit, that's not them speaking out of their emotions and being fallible. That's them claiming to divinely hear from God. That's a big deal, and it's sobering, and it's serious, and it should be taken in reverence. This is why I'm doing this podcast, and this is why I do the the post, the blog post that I do, because I want to steer people back to truth. If there's just one person that hears the things that I, I say or reads the words that I write, if there's just one person I'm supposed to minister to to give glory to God through all of this, then that's okay with me, because I'm not concerned about a huge following. I'm not concerned about a huge platform. All I'm concerned about is pleasing God and hearing him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. So as you can see, if you're new to this podcast, I tend to take a few rabbit trails, but we're going to get back on the trail again, back to Agabus. So now we're going to jump ahead from Acts chapter 11, and we're going to go on to Acts 21. This is the other time that we see Agabus referenced. So in Acts 21, we see that Paul is going and he's ministering to different areas before he is getting ready to face more persecution. He's already faced some persecution in in Acts 20. He leaves Ephesus. He gives a warning to the church at Ephesus about the wolves that are going to come in and minister. So we see in Acts 21 that Paul goes to Jerusalem and he has people that are warning him. Even in Acts 20, he mentions that everywhere he goes, that the Holy Spirit is ministering, telling him that he is going to encounter persecution and trials for the sake of Christ. He, he mentions that. He says, everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit keeps testifying and telling me that, that trials and persecution await me for the sake of Christ. But he's willing to go because he loves the Lord and he wants to serve him and glorify him. He doesn't care about losing his life. In Acts 21, we see that Agabus comes on the scene in verse 11, excuse me, verse 10. So we see that it starts here with mentioning Agabus one more time. Acts 21 verse 10 says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, the people, we, which is including Luke, because when he says we, remember who's writing this letter. Luke is writing this to Theophilus. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. But then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Even Luke was in on that about wanting, not wanting Paul to go. They were driven by their emotions, it sounds like. They didn't want Paul to go, and Paul is ready to die for Christ. He's ready to die for the sake of the gospel. And then they basically ceased saying anything, and they said, let the will of the Lord be done. If they lived in some of the charismatic circles today, they would have been rebuked for saying, let the will of the Lord be done, because some people view that as weakness when you pray. 
But as a side note, it would be important for us to remember that even our Lord and Savior prayed that way in the garden, that the not his will, but uh, the will of the Father be done. There's nothing weak in that. It's about understanding who God is and that we are not uh, in charge of God, but he is sovereign over all things. So we see here with Agabus, the one thing that stood out to me first and foremost when I read this a few times through over the past couple years is Agabus beginning his statement with, thus says the Holy Spirit, which he was speaking, it makes it very clear, he was speaking by the Holy Spirit. Luke is recording this to Theophilus, and he's making it very clear to Theophilus. Agabus was speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't saying, I believe God said this, or I feel like God said this, or maybe God said this. He's speaking as an Old Testament prophet did and saying, thus says the Lord when they did, or he's saying the Lord said, or God said. In this instance, he's saying, thus says the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit doesn't miss things. He doesn't err. He doesn't, he doesn't get it wrong. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and he is infallible and he is the spirit of God and there is no falsehood in him. He is the spirit of truth, is what the Word of God tells us. This is one of the biggest sticking points for me when reading this, is if Agabus is saying, thus says the Holy Spirit, then, and if this is the divine Word of God, then this is not an error. And we're going to talk a little bit about this, and I'll tell you why from other scriptures it, it appears that this is not an error. So we see that Agabus is telling him here, he takes his belt and he binds him and he, sh- and he, sh- and he shows him and says to him, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, Agabus demonstrated that the Holy Spirit was revealing what was to take place in Jerusalem with Paul. So my challenge here is is to attribute error in this account is to lay it upon the Holy Spirit. That in itself is error because the third person of the Trinity is infallible, as I just said. Now, as we read on, we see in Acts 21, after this took place, we see that Paul is arrested in the temple. That's in Acts 21, verse 27 through 36. And we read of Paul being arrested in the temple here, and the people were falsely accusing him regarding his teaching, as well as assuming that he had brought Trophimus, who was a Gentile, into the synagogue, because Gentiles were not allowed into the temple or the synagogue. So, in verse 30, we, f- we read that they, the people seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. Now, when I actually looked up, I took a little bit, and where I don't know Greek, it takes me some time to, to use a Greek lexicon, but I was able to find the Greek word for dragged in there because it's very different than going to like a Strong's Concordance or anything. The, the BDAG is actually what I have. I have a used one of it. Um, so I looked in the lexicon, the BDAG that I had, and, it, and the word drag there... One of the meanings that was actually listed and it was attributed to this particular passage of scripture, it would mean that he was unable to move himself and that he was drawn out by others. He could not voluntarily move himself. For Paul to be dragged out would imply in some way, shape, or fashion that he was bound and he couldn't move himself, that it was involuntary. And some scholars believe that they may have used whatever was available to them, hence his belt that was on him. So they seized him, they dragged him out, and then it says that the tribunal heard that what was going on, and so they came and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Now, prior to that, it says that when the Jewish people saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
what we want to see here for a lot of us is we want to see some sort of confirmation or affirmation in later on after Agabus's prophecy that somebody says, oh, Agabus predicted, prophesied that this was going to happen and listed out verbatim. But the question is, why would Luke need to do that? Luke is writing a letter to Theophilus to help him understand the historical account of what happened in the early church at the beginning after Christ was resurrected, he ascended into heaven, and what happened in the early church, Peter's ministry, Paul's ministry, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and testifying of him, testifying of the gospel to reconcile people back to God the Father, to point the, the Jews back to, to, to God, and then when they wouldn't listen, Paul went to the Gentiles, and he began to minister to them, and then the great mystery was revealed that Paul talks about in the epistles, that the great mystery is revealed that there would be other nations that would come to Christ, that would come to know the Lord, and would be drawn to him and be saved. And we see that the great mystery involves the, the gospel coming to Gentiles, you and I, if we don't have of Jewish descent. So, Acts 21, when we read here, when he's arrested, there's no mention of Agabus. There's no mention of reiterating or uh, rehashing out what, what Agabus said. So here, the question, here's another question I have here is why would Luke bother to reiterate to Theophilus? Here are the details of the prophecy and how Paul was bound, as Agabus said he would be. If Agabus had erred in the prophecy, it would make more sense that Luke would have made a point to bring this to light in the account. Yet nobody says anything at any time about about Agabus being an error. And let me also state this, is that when you, uh, if you hear or read about some of the historians, John Chrysostom and Josephus and other people that wrote, uh, some of these, uh, the Bible scholars mention that none of these people mention about how Agabus was an error. That didn't come about until the modern times with people questioning Agabus. So that should give us a little bit of pause, too, in and of itself, to think why would that even be brought up that he was an error if for hundreds of years nobody else that was that was historically referencing these things or making commentaries on such things, why would they never mention that they thought that Agabus was an error and yet this is a, a new modern issue that's come up in thinking this way? And as we go on, we begin to see that, that there are people that essentially confirm what Agabus said. Now, do they say the name of Agabus and his prophecy? No, they don't. But what their words do is they confirm what happened to Paul in Acts 21 when he was arrested in the temple. So following this prophecy, those there are some that, including Paul himself, that confirmed what happened to him, that essentially confirm what Agabus said. There is no one mentioned in scripture discrediting For example, what Claudius Lysias wrote to Felix the governor when he stated that he rescued Paul as a Roman citizen from the Jews after they had seized him. Now, Claudius Lysias, it seems when you read this, he conveniently left out the fact that they had arrested Paul and that they were actually going to, they were going to flog Paul. And yet when they went to go flog Paul, and you can see this in Acts 22, Paul mentions to the soldier, he asks him, he says, are you a Roman citizen? And he says, yes. And and then he says that he bought that citizenship for a large sum. And Paul tells him, I was born a Roman citizen. So they were fearful when they found that out because Roman citizens were not supposed to be flogged and treated in such a manner. And so they did not do that to Paul. It would seem that when Claudius, as a side note, when he wrote this letter, that he conveniently leaves that part out because 
he probably doesn't want to get in trouble for the fact that they were getting ready to do something to Paul as a Roman citizen that they, under their law, they were not permitted to do. So he phrases it and says, this man was seized. This is in Acts 23, verse 27, when he introduces himself to the uh, Felix, the governor. He says, this man, who is Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And he goes on to talk about the charges that were they were accusing him of and that he was brought down to the council. And he gives, he sends him off at night. We won't go into all that detail so we see this happening in Acts 23. And again, it seems like when Claudius is saying this, he's confirming what Agabus said, alluding to the fact he was seized by the Jews. He was arrested by the Romans, who are Gentiles, by the way. And the Jews in attendance confirmed, again, we see in Acts 24, um, Tertullus. Tertull- in Acts 24, we see that Tertullus explained to Felix, the governor, about how they seized Paul in the temple on account of his alleged actions. You can read about that in Acts chapter 24, verses 6 and verse 9. The Jews in attendance also confirm what Tertullus said. So they're not disputing the fact that they seized Paul. And again, when we go back and we look at Acts 21, it says they dragged him out and looking at what that Greek word means in its context and that he was drawn by others in some way, shape or fashion. You can't be drawn unless something's probably attached to you for them to draw you involuntarily and to drag you out. So Paul himself can even confirm this. This is another person, Paul himself, the very person that this happened to in, in the account of the Acts of the Apostles, Paul himself confirmed in his defense before King Agrippa that the Jews seized him in the temple and tried to kill him. So we're going to turn to Acts 26, and in verse 19, Paul is giving his defense before King Agrippa, and he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but de- which he talks about, this is on the road to Damascus, by the way, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and through all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And he talks about how Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So we see even here that Paul again is reiterating the fact that he was seized by the Jews in the temple and that they tried to kill him because of the message of repentance, which is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, uh, one last thing that's important to note here is in Acts chapter 28, verse 17. He actually just traveled from Malta and he is in Rome now and he had appealed to Caesar. And we see in Acts chapter 28, verse 17, as he is appealing to Caesar and, and talking to Caesar and presenting his defense to him, It says in Acts 28, verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Now, if you'll recall in Acts 21, when Agabus is giving the prophecy to Paul, he uses the word delivered. He says, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. There are some biblical scholars that have actually pointed out that the word deliver that Paul uses in Acts 28 verse 17 is the same word that Agabus used in Acts 21 when he delivered the prophecy to Paul. The fact that he uses the same word 
is also another supportive evidence to show that Agabus was not in error. And let me go back to this as I'm wrapping this up. Let me go back to this one final thing here that is the ultimate, this is the ultimate foundation of this prophecy. Agabus was proclaiming to speak by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you know, I read one of the, the paragraphs out of my blog post at the beginning of this, and this is the crux of every bit of this prophecy. I, in my opinion, is that if we are going to say Agabus was an error, then that is essentially attributing error to God. And what kind of God is that? <laughs> that would be an error because the word of God tells us that, that God is not a man that he should lie and God knows everything and he is incapable of error. We are the ones that are fallible and in error. And some people may try to say, well, you know, someone could hear God, but they're just not transmitting it right. So having said everything I've said about Agabus, and without getting on another rabbit trail about the different prophets in the Bible, and ultimately leading us back to Scripture and showing that true prophets of God, even false prophets such as Balaam, didn't have any trouble hearing the voice of God. The true prophets of God spoke inerrantly when they were speaking on behalf of thus saith the Lord. The problem that we're having now in this current movement is we have people that are saying God said, the Holy Spirit said, let's stand firm on what this says. And when these things don't come to pass, then it's pointing error back to God. Whether we realize that or not, when you or I or anybody is saying God said or the Holy Spirit said, and those things don't come to pass, then we have, in essence, made God a liar. And it's a God of our own making. It is not the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible doesn't lie. He, he doesn't miss it. He doesn't falsely interpret. He doesn't transmit it improperly. Nor is that person transmitting it wrong. They're hearing it wrong. If we can say they're hearing it wrong, then they're hearing the wrong voice. Because it's not God. It's not some radio frequency that we have to try to pick up. It's not some sort of thing that we need a satellite for or an antenna to pick up the right, the right sound wave <laughs> or whatever in order to hear God properly. God is inerrant. He does not speak errantly through people. He does not. People are errant. God is not. And we have to understand that distinction. And one of the biggest things as I close with this and something for you to think about as well. As I was thinking about that statement of Agabus being wrong and the prophecy being an error that he didn't uh, fully convey it right based on our understanding of Scripture and not really taking everything into consideration beyond that prophecy and what happened and studying it further, the biggest thing I came away from all that was asking this one question. Why would we want to justify error in any way in the prophetic movement or in the charismatic movement, the apostolic prophetic movement? Why would we want to justify error by searching the scripture to find an origin of error? I don't understand that. I don't understand wanting to look in scripture to justify a wrongful practice, a wrongful practice that is not glorifying God. If anything, it, br it brings reproach on the name of Christ. And it saddens me to think about that there are people that are doing that, that are utilizing this one, this one particular passage in scripture. And they're saying, well, because it doesn't resonate the way I think it should throughout the rest of the scripture to validate that, then I'm going to stand here and, and on this one particular passage and say, well, he was wrong. I, I think that that's error to contribute error to God. And again, this is a, a fallible vessel that the Holy Spirit spoke through, 
but we're missing the fact that the Holy Spirit spoke through him and said what was going to happen to Paul. And it did happen. He was seized. He was dragged out of the temple by the Jewish people. And then the the Gentiles, the Romans came up and the beating stopped and they arrested Paul. And there are people in scripture that have validated that. They've confirmed that, including Paul himself. So I wanted to share this with you. Maybe you've heard teachings about this. Maybe Maybe you've been bothered when you've heard that and not really fully understood it. I hope that this has helped some to shed more light on that. Always take things back to Scripture. Always test things against Scripture. Don't, no matter what kind of teaching you're hearing as a believer in Christ, everything should be taken back to the Word of God to make sure because that's our foundation. That's our foundation for the truth. This is what we are to be set apart and sanctified by is the truth. That's what Jesus, one of the things that Jesus prayed for in John 17. He said, sanctify them by your truth when he prayed to the Father. He said, your word is truth. And the word testifies of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus Christ. He is not going to testify of himself or anybody else. He's going to testify of Christ. And he is the spirit of truth. He is not going to falsely transmit anything. He's not going to mishear something. And he's not going to cause someone to that's that's claiming or labeled as a prophet to be labeled a false prophet. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, and he is going to tell the truth. And I would urge you just to do your own study of Agabus and take a look at this because it's worth looking at and it's and it's worth defending. It's worth defending. I'm I'm defending Agabus in a sense, in these passages. I, I will defend Agabus in this. I believe that he was not an error. I, am, I refuse to attribute error to God. If he spoke by, it says, thus says the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write this down to Theophilus because it's divinely inspired, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, and there's nowhere in Scripture that anybody disputes what Agabus said and says Agabus missed it, Luke failed somehow, to mention that Agabus missed it, this this should send off warning bells or flags to us that, you know, there's there's something, there's a disconnect here that we're not getting because if it's not there, then that means he was correct. With that being said, I hope that this blessed you. I look forward to being on here with you again. Have a blessed week. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.